Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and I'm very excited to be with John Patricius, the president of the South African Sports Medicine Association, and also a guest from South Africa, Tim Noakes, who will be very well known to most BJSM listeners. We're going to focus on the, the June issue of BJSM, and our South African sports medicine partners have taken the lead on guiding this issue. Welcome, John. Good evening, uh, Karim. So, John, let's begin with us hearing about South African sports medicine. We haven't had a podcast focused on Africa yet, and I know you're very pleased with how things have been going in the last few years. I think there is a certain momentum to sports medicine in in the country and in the continent at the moment, Uh, and it's being driven by quite a small cohort of clinicians, I think, which is really our challenge, is how do we expand that and uh, include more and more clinicians and researchers in trying to put South African sports medicine on the map. Uh, But I do think that over the last few years we've had more presentations by South Africans at international congresses. I think the caliber of our own courses and congresses has improved uh, thanks to associations with journals such as yours and uh, international presenters who've come out. And certainly this South African guided issue for us is is really quite a privilege and, and helps maintain that momentum in trying to spread the word that uh, at the tip of Africa, hopefully we are creating pockets of excellence uh, to uh, further the, the cause of sports medicine internationally. So we are pleased, but we're looking for a new generation of clinicians and researchers to now drive the movement forward. And John, what would you say the highlights are on the on the playing field? How are African and South African athletes you know, better off now than they were many years ago? There's no question that they they are. Certainly when I started out uh, as a a team physician some 15 or 16 years ago, uh, we were really quite quite behind the rest of the world. And I think because of uh, this cross-pollination of ideas at at various congresses, uh, because of competitions, tournaments such as the Super Rugby competition where we're now associating regularly with opposition medical teams from from around the world. I think there's there's been a a dramatic improvement in the standard of care. And the other thing is I think that hopefully our scientists are making some inroads with our coaches and conditioners in terms of giving a lot more scientific input into into our team's performances. Uh, And and that's at various levels, Uh, certainly internationally, uh, the, the rugby team uh, have taken uh, have taken notice of, of of the advice given by a lot of our sports scientists and and physicians, and you're going to be chatting to Tim Noakes soon, and and even at a, a university level, he was quite instrumental in the University of Cape Town's uh, training and conditioning when they won the, the the recent Varsity Cup. So it just shows that at every level we're trying to influence or have an influence. In the performance of our of our teams, and and it is improving, and right down to school level, we've seen some some fairly professional approaches to to sport. So we're excited about it, but uh, as I say, it, it it needs to maintain that momentum, and uh, hopefully, we're going to create a, a generation to do that. Tim, what changes have you seen in your time? What's been exciting for you? I, I would mirror what John has said. I think that the service to athletes in this country is 
it's uh, it, it's unimaginable what the athletes get now compared to what they did when I started in the 1970s, late 70s, when the athletes in South Africa really got no care at all. And I think that John's correct that the professional teams receive a care that is of a very high standard. Um, I think that areas I'd like to focus on is in the endurance sports. My own belief is that the we are the world leaders in the management of endurance events. And it's because we've only applied scientific principles. So we manage the patients on the basis of scientific evidence, not on the basis of other factors. And for that reason, for example, at the recent Two Oceans Marathon, not one athlete received an intravenous drip at the end of the race. And that we started that in the, in the, in the early 2000s where we had two ultra Ironman triathlons in which we did not give one drip after the race. Now, I guess there's not one race in the world that can claim that. And the difference is that we don't believe there's any scientific evidence that athletes should be receiving intravenous fluids after exercise. And in fact, we have a paper in your journal showing that where we did a, cl a controlled clinical trial showing that people recover just as quickly whether if you give them intravenous fluids or not. And so I think that that's one area that we've, we've really been successful. The other area in which South Africa has, has made important advances in this, is in the so-called BOC Smart Program. BOC is the short for the Springbok Rugby emblem or team. And this is a program which aims to educate all players, coaches, and referees involved in rugby at all levels in South Africa on how to prevent injuries. And in fact, the, condition, the position now is that no rugby match can be held if the coaches and the players and the referees have not been instructed in the BoxMart program. It is mirrored exactly on what's been happening in New Zealand. They have a very similar program, and we've taken the best of their program and made it acceptable or good for South Africa. So that's been another area of advancement and I think John has also mentioned that the physical training of the players has improved dramatically in South Africa. I still think we're perhaps not quite as scientifically based as we should be in that area. And we tend to overtrain the players, and, and many of the players play too much rugby. But at least we're making progress. And in fact, in the newspaper yesterday morning, the, the Springbok captain said that we're playing too much rugby, and for that to happen is a major advance. That the players would acknowledge that they, they're being forced to play too much is a great advance for us, and hopefully in future we'll manage the players better and make sure they don't play too much. That's great. So what I'm hearing is this connection between science and clinical application, and that's what's always struck me about work coming out of South Africa is how anchored it is how anchored the research is in the clinical needs of the patient, such as the distance runner or the rugby player, um, you know, or people who suffered quadriplegia, for example. So we'll use that as a lead into the June issue of BJSM because it really is anchored in clinical issues and ask John to uh, tell us what you see the highlights in this issue that you've worked on. Uh, the June issue, the South African-driven issue, has has really got a couple of themes, I think, or a thread running through it. Now, one of those is quality South African research. So my picks in terms of uh, favorite papers in, in, in this edition are Martin Schwellness's group, 
talking about uh, cramps and the relationship to running speed rather than dehydration or electrolyte changes. Uh, and, and I think we know that uh, Martin and his group have done a lot of work on this and this is just a continuation of that theme and further proof that there's a lot more to musculoskeletal cramping in sport than, uh, than was previously thought in terms of electrolyte changes. We've spoken uh, a little bit to Tim about uh, his work and, and highlights. And again, if we think of, of, of Tim, we always think of uh, hyponatremia. We always think of the central governor. And there's a good paper that uh, is published in this edition uh, talking about the role of emotions on pacing strategies and performance in endurance events. And, and that's the collaboration with a French group, which I think people will find extremely interesting. And then, again, uh, you know, in, in, in my editorial to this journal, I've, I've alluded to South Africa's hosting of the World Cup. And so we have a football theme or thread that runs through the, the edition as well. And there's an analysis of the injuries that occurred in the 2010 World Cup hosted in South Africa, uh, which, uh, on which Wayne Derman and Martin Schwellness collaborated. And then, I think, again, a, a good example of a paper that takes uh, scientific principles and applies them at grassroots level is Colin Fuller's paper on the 11 for Health program, FIFA's football-based education program for children, which has previously been successfully run and studied in South Africa, in Cape Town, and now um, there's a two-cohort study which is published uh, in Mauritius and Zimbabwe. So again, very good research applied at grassroots level. So it's really that combination of uh, South African-based research and, uh, and football medicine that, that I think runs through with obviously some very good papers, which I think carry a little bit of a clinical bias just because that's my interest. But those are the highlights for me. Very nice. Very nice summary, John. Fantastic. And uh, the clinical bias is uh, BJSM's angle as well, we're aiming to be interest, interesting for clinicians, so that's nothing to apologise for, it's central to what we're, we're trying to do. So we'll get back to the World Cup um, articles in a, after a bit of a chat about um, those two papers you mentioned by Tim. So Tim, we need our own podcast with you about all your work, but uh, you know, in this issue there's the paper by Barron and uh, also the paper relating to hydration. And so within the constraints that we have of time today, why don't you sort of excite our listeners about those and, and uh, make, make them go to the journal, which is part of our plan. <laughs> Definitely. Well, the paper by Barron looks at the central governor model of exercise and how the brain regulates exercise performance. And I think slowly people are beginning to realize that the old model where exercise is limited in the periphery by muscles either becoming too acidic or running out of glycogen or something else happening really doesn't, doesn't hold enough water, doesn't explain what we observe. And so we've developed the idea that, in fact, the brain's there to make sure that when you exercise, you don't ever become depleted of anything, but you don't have a failure of homeostasis. And as a consequence, the brain anticipates the future and regulates the performance. Now, the big question is, is this done consciously or subconsciously? 
And that's part of the big debate. And the people who believe the brain is a regulator, the question is to what extent is it consciously controlled and what and unconsciously controlled. And then the question is, why do we get discomfort, pain, and suffering when you're exercising? What is the explanation for those symptoms? And what is the role of emotional control? And so this paper takes a look. It's a review paper which looks at the the evidence for either the conscious or subconscious control of exercise and the role of emotions. And one of the points it makes is that the emotional surroundings in which exercise occurs need to be taken into account, that people need to measure what is the emotional effort of the training because that also will impact on future performances. And so that's sort of the question that the paper really addresses, is that we spend so much time worrying about the physical state of the athlete that we need to look at the emotional state as well and see how training impacts on that because eventually the emotions will also impact on performance. So in brief, this is a really good review of where the state of the art is in understanding how the brain regulates exercise performance. And it includes new ideas of how emotions are integrated in as regulators of the performance. The second paper by James Winger, Jonathan Dugas, and Lara Dugas, uh, the connection to South Africa is that Jonathan and Lara are both PhD graduates of our program. And Jonathan did his PhD on fluid balance during exercise, and particularly how much people need to drink during exercise. And he did one of the best trials that has yet been done where he had athletes drink either one of six different volumes of fluid during exercise. And what he showed was that if you drank to thirst, you optimized your performance. If you drank more than to thirst, you got no additional benefit, whereas if you drank less than thirst, your performance was impaired. And since then, there is, in fact, a, a review paper coming out in the British Journal of Sports Medicine in a few months which has done a meta-analysis of all the studies, and it does show the evidence is that drinking too thirst is the optimum behavior during exercise. If you drink ahead of thirst, it's unphysiological, and you really risk developing hyponatremia, or worse, exercise-associated hyponatremic encephalopathy with potential death if you're badly treated. And if you drink less, your performance is also impaired. So what this paper did was to look at what are the beliefs that drive the behaviors. And the study found that about 58% of runners do actually drink to thirst, but a substantial number, in fact, drink beyond thirst. And of the order of 13% or so, believe that you must drink as much as you possibly can during exercise. And that is clearly wrong. And that is a marketing ploy that has been used over the years to encourage overconsumption of sports drinks. And so what, these, what the study shows is that the behavior during running is linked to your beliefs, as it has to be. And m- many runners, not a majority, but a large number of runners still don't know the physiological basis of what they should be drinking during exercise. And the point is that you should be drinking to thirst. And for some, that will be they will drink a lot, and for others, it'll drink, they'll drink little. But you cannot prescribe to athletes and tell them they have to drink a prescribed amount or that they must drink to stay ahead of thirst. Both, that is wrong advice. And one of the great problems of the past 20 years has been 
the, the growth of hyponatremia in athletes with some death, and we believe it was directly linked to the idea that athletes were encouraged to overdrink. And so what the authors ask is that in future, runners should be better educated, that this is a real health issue, and they should be educated not to overdrink during exercise. And provided they drink to thirst, they'll optimize performance, and they will reduce their risk of any medical complications. That's fantastic, Tim. Um, I think very nice summary of really decades of work. And can I get you to agree to do a separate podcast for BJSM on both of those topics, please? It'll be a great pleasure because I think that certainly as far as the, the overhydration story, my, my good news is that I do have a book coming out and it will be published unfortunately in October 2012, which tells you it's a substantive, substantive work. And it is in the process of being developed and refined and shortened because my problem is I always write too much. And so the editors want to reduce the, the book substantially. But this is a history of the drinking behaviors and how they developed over the last 100 years. And it, it addresses the problem of where did this hyponatremia issue come from. So the more we get that exposed to the runners and the doctors specifically, it's important because I think many doctors are scared that they've heard that only if you drink beyond thirst is it safe. And they're scared to give any different advice to runners. And we really need to advise doctors that actually the body knows best. And it has to know best because it's been evolving for millions of years. And it will choose what is the best behavior for the, for the human survival. And so doctors need to know that. And then I think it's important that the central government model needs to be more widely exposed. And just to give you an example, I was in Stockholm uh, three months ago, and I, I spoke to the Nordic ultramarathon runners, and they had their ultramarathon championships three weeks ago. And I got very excited reports back from the people saying that, you know, just knowing that the brain's regulated exercise performance has improved their performances dramatically. And I, I really believe that if people understand that fatigue is not in the muscles, it's in the mind, that performance can be dramatically enhanced as a consequence of that. Yeah, that's, that is great. And it's funny, it's one of those things that sounds so obvious once you start mentioning it when you tell the story of the central government the way you did earlier in this interview. It's like, well, how could it be anything else? And yet you know, physiology has been in a completely other channel for a long time. So that's fascinating. And I know many listeners would be very grateful to get this time with you when things are so busy for you at conferences. And uh, so just real insight for, for our listeners. So thanks for being on the call and, and doing that, Tim. We'll head back to John to talk about the, the FIFA issues, um, the football theme in this in this particular uh, issue of BJSM. And just your experience, John, why don't you begin with your clinical experience what was it like being part of the World Cup as a sports physician? Well, the whole the whole vibe, whether you were a, a clinician or a spectator or an administrator, I think was absolutely electrifying. It was it was a wonderful time for the country, and it was it was very exciting. But uh, I, I think one of the things as a as a clinician, when when you faced with very high profile athletes, is uh, to to realise that they are just athletes and and human beings and uh, it, it was it was uh, was was fantastic to be involved with with really the big names of world sport and 
realize that uh, most of them anyway are, are fairly down to earth. So from a from a, an experience point of view, it was wonderful. Uh, from a clinical point of view, uh, I hope South Africa uh, did a good job and, and the feedback we've got is, is that it was. And, and there was a lot of hard work put in by a, a very large group of, of people who were involved and I think we're quite proud of that. And then on the injury side, um Obviously, at BJSM, we've had strong collaboration with FIFA, and uh, it was great that they published their results in, in this issue. Was your sense that the injuries have gone down for a few reasons in soccer, and particularly the World Cup? They have gone down, and I think that uh, one of the key reasons which other sports can, can learn from is a change in the rules, um, and, and certain key changes... Uh, have made uh, significant differences. And if we look at the transition, for instance, from uh, Germany and from World Cups before that to South Africa with the incidence, for instance, of uh, head injuries, that has decreased significantly. And that's an area I've got an interest in. And it really comes down essentially to a change in the, the law as to how uh, the players can use their arms and lift their arms. So it's taken out a lot of the elbow-to-head impact uh, and that's that's made a significant change. So I think we'll always have injuries in contact and collision sports, but uh, you know the, the the role of the administrators is really to monitor that and to make changes accordingly. And I think that uh, FIFA is particularly good at that. Uh, and I think that I've alluded to to the 11 for health model and and the, the changes at grassroots level, but at all levels, uh, monitoring of of incidents of injuries is is important. And uh, I think that Jiri Vojak and uh, Astrid Junga, Wayne and Martin have done a great job on that. Um, and people will find it interesting to monitor the, the various uh, trends in injury. I know FIFA were looking to add to sports medicine in Africa. And there was a terrific congress ahead of the World Cup in Sun City out of Johannesburg. Did you feel that there was that positive influence on sports medicine in Africa? I think it, I think it was there. I think that it was just to have that FIFA stamp of approval and say let's, let's recognize sports medicine and uh, host a conference uh, you know, before the World Cup in, in, in your country was good. I thought that the attendance from people from around Africa was good and I thought that uh, that gave some momentum uh, to the cause of sports medicine on our on our continent, and uh, we mustn't forget that we've also got two FIFA centres of excellence, one in Johannesburg and one in Cape Town, uh, in in South Africa, and obviously there's uh, FIFA-driven research coming out of both of those centres as well. So I think apart from just putting on a good exhibition of football, hopefully that hosting the World Cup on this continent will have an effect on research going forward and that that research can be applied both in, in Africa and uh, worldwide. So there's no question that, that the hosting of such an event has tremendous repercussions and uh, so certainly lends uh, some, some weight to the argument that the game should be spread around the world. And it, it's good to see that the World Cup is being hosted now in an increasing number of, of, of locations. Indeed, although some people in some locations won't agree with you, but that's okay. We're, uh, <laughs> that's the nature of things. <laughs> uh, honest debate is okay, and uh, you know, 
it was uh, it's a difficult process. So, absolutely, John and uh, Tim, FIFA Centre of Excellence were mentioned, and your centre at the South African Sports Institute has an IOC centre as well. So, you know, a comment from you on these larger international bodies for sport really playing their social responsibility role. Have you seen a benefit at your institute? Yes, we've definitely seen a benefit from the IOC collaboration because they've put money into the research, and that's what's critical. I think these big organizations have a lot of money, but they really don't invest the, a fair share of it back into the science. They put a lot of money elsewhere, but uh, perhaps they should consider more money going into, into science. I noticed, for example, a few days ago that either the IOC or FIFA, I forget which one it was, has just invested $200 million into the investigation of match fixing. So that clearly shows that they have a lot of money. And the question is, would they invest $200 million into science, sports science research? And that's the question, because they clearly have the money. How do they choose their priorities? I always think, and you remember I've been in this business for 40 years or so, that, sport, that science is always considered last. Everything else is attended to, and then science is given the last chance. And I think also there's too much concern about the outcome, that the, the money is, sent, is given for a definite outcome, and the, we're meant to change the future of soccer or Olympic Games in a year or two, and that's unrealistic. You have to invest a lot of money over a long time to get change. So whilst I welcome the money that has been put into science and research, I think it's too little, and I think that the program has to be long-term, and they have to realize that you can't get results within a few years. You have to develop, develop and build the culture of research. And so that's what I'm hoping that the both organizations understand, that if they really want to make a difference, they're going to have to put lots of money in over many years and uh, not be looking for short, quick quick answers to difficult problems. Thanks for that, Tim, and great to have that experience and perspective. And that is a good lead into Football for Health, and that's the umbrella concept that football could be a way of helping promote health messages to young people who wouldn't normally adopt these in the classroom. John, tell us more about the, the Fuller paper and your sense of this Football for Health concept. Well, Colin Fuller's got a, a tremendous track record in terms of uh, epidemiological research and uh, application of research uh, in, in various aspects of sport, be it football or rugby union, uh, at, at a grassroots level. And I think this was an excellent uh, example of that, where the 11th for Health program, which is really 11 key health issues linked to a slogan linked in turn to a particular soccer exercise uh, is applied uh, at, at the school level and in a third world environment to try and teach children uh, essentially healthy practices. And that may be things like, uh, you know, just washing your hands and the risks of spread of HIV, etc. And it really showed that uh, the application of this, this these, these principles had uh, a significant effect on uh, these kids' understanding of, of health issues uh, and tying them in, into soccer exercises and drills that certainly 
creates uh, an excitement factor and, as a result, uh, an increased degree of compliance. And I think the the, the program, uh, again, I, I've mentioned it was run in Kailicha in, in South Africa previously with similar beneficial results, and now with evidence from uh, Mauritius and from Zimbabwe. I think the challenge is now to take this forward, as Tim said, and apply it in a, in a very widespread manner in, in, in third world environments. And I think that's really where the funding's got to go to making a significant difference using uh, this global game of, of, of football to make a difference to people's health. And uh, I think in South Africa we're in a u unique position having uh, a large third world population but significant first world input in, in terms of trying to promote this. So that was a paper that I was very, very glad to see included in this edition. So that was, we referred to it as Colin Fuller as the first author for convenience, but it's a team effort including Izzy Dorak, Astrid Junger and Mario Bazzini. So great to have that in the issue. So hopefully that has given our listeners a taste for this month's BJSM. But of course, there's great articles on the web going back on all these topics across many years and really easy to find on the website. We have the BJSM blog where we discuss these things and listeners can email comments and add to the debate, so add the blog to your regular blog sites that you check and we're on Twitter to direct you to what's on the blog. So those media work very conveniently and I encourage you to give that a try. John, we're going to finish by touching on the conference coming up in October, so October 18 to 20 this year, 2011, you've got the SASMA Congress outside of Johannesburg. Why don't you share with the listeners the highlights of that? I think our aim as the South African Sports Medicine Association is to make sure that this is a, a true international congress. And from that I mean that we have uh, a number of top quality international speakers. We have delegates from all over the world. And we really want to aim to make it of international caliber. So I think that's important. So if we look at the faculty, uh, we've got Jill Cook, who's uh, always very popular. We have Ben Kibler, who we've been trying to get to the country for some years now and uh, will be very popular. Uh, we've got Louise Burke on the, uh, on the nutrition side and her husband, uh, John Hawley, on the physiological side. Very strong, actually, on the exercise physiology with Mark Tonopolsky as well from Canada will be there. Obviously yourself, and then also from the UK, we've got Craig Ranson, um, who's going to run a back injuries workshop with an emphasis on cricket medicine as well. And then we've got Werner Sickman from uh, Germany from a, a, a surgical point of view, and, and George Davies talking about isokinetic testing. So I think we've got really a very good uh, international faculty, and they'll join up with the best of our uh, local experts, including Tim uh, we've got some senior citizens such as Clive Noble who described the Noble's test for ITB. And then we've got a, a significant local faculty really covering every aspect of sports medicine and exercise science. So I think whatever discipline uh, you come from, whether it's clinical, surgical, uh, whether you're a scientist, a nutritionist, a physiologist, chiropractor, uh, physiotherapist, Whatever your discipline, I think there's going to be something there for you and uh, hopefully very high-caliber presentations uh, mixed in with some good South African entertainment. And we really want to expose 
the world to the best of, of African sports medicine and importantly expose our up-and-coming clinicians and researchers to the best in the world as well. So hopefully it'll be a good mix. If I may just get a website address for people to go to for more information on the Congress, uh, it is www.sasma.org.za. And that was John Patricius, who's the president of the South African Sports Medicine Association, and Tim Noakes, who's a professor of sports medicine and sports science at the University of Cape Town. Thanks for listening. For more information about this program and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.